Hey everybody, this is Charles Hayne. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of March 27th, 2020, also known as COVID Week 2. I'm Charles Hayne, writer at No Film School. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hey. Writer at No Film School, Michelle Delatour. Hi, everyone. And writer at No Film School and outside of No Film School, Jason Hellerman. Good afternoon. And we're here to be talking about all sorts of things related to the filmmaking world. The first big story this week is Netflix's $100 million fund to support the film industry. The No Film School 60 contest, NFS 60. We're also going to be talking about tech news, which is specifically all of the amazing things tech companies are trying to do to uh, support people through this process. And then we've got a really amazing Ask No Film School. All that this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, everybody. Our first story this week, Netflix has announced a $100 million fund to support filmmakers through this time. So, you know, it's it's only their only one company. It seems like that a lot of companies should be uh, doing something for this. But obviously, one of the big plights of this period is freelancers. If you have a big steady job where you're able to work from home and it's one thing, but if you're a freelancer and your next job has dried up or your next four jobs has dried up or your next season of television has dried up, this is a really difficult trying time. Are all of the details out on the Netflix uh, fund? What we have in the post up on nofilmschool.com uh, is that it will primarily go towards supporting the quote, hardest hit workers. Um, but we indicate we don't exactly know the specifics behind that at least not at the time of the writing of this post. 15 million of the fund will benefit non-Netflix non -Netflix productions through third parties. Um, they will be donating 1 million to the SAG after a COVID-19 disaster fund, the Motion Picture and Television Fund, and the Actors Fund Emergency Assistance. Um, there's a few other places, but it's not entirely clear. The fund aims to support the cast and crew members, including those working on Stranger Things, The Witcher, and Russian Doll. So I think there is an internal, like, I think, like, uh, for those following how this has affected, like, the sports world, which is another entertainment community, there have been a lot of things about people who work at, say, venues who are out of work. So initially, there were a lot of athletes who were pledging support to help pay those salaries. But then the question was begged of like, Hey, the owners of these franchises are billionaires, not just millionaires. How come they don't want to continue? So then there were some funds set up, but I think it sounds like this is like a moving, uh, what's the right word to use here? Um, evolving situation. I think it's definitely interesting. I think in terms of what I heard, obviously it's not enough, right? So 15 million for things not on Netflix isn't enough. Even just thinking, uh, you know, 85 million for shows on Netflix, I hope that's enough. It's tough to know where that might go or who, who it will go to. In my mind, it probably, and again, like this is, I don't have any facts in front of me, but I'm assuming it pays out the contracts for what was shooting and then possibly includes like a bonus on what's the end. Because we have no idea of how long the COVID-19 um, outbreak and isolation is going to take, especially in America, I do think it's going to have to be a number that goes up in the future. You probably will see studios like Sony, like Paramount, uh, like Warner Brothers, Disney, all, you know, every all the big five, the major studios, um, Universal included, 
shelling out money to funds like this. I think it's super important. And there's a lot of people that are going to need to survive on this stuff. The interesting thing I'll say is uh, a lot of these studios don't have a lot of money. You know, Netflix is at a time where it has been making a lot of money, but also is like deeply in the red. You know, like there's so many articles about how they break even. I'm wondering if this is like a hundred million they can pledge to offset some of that negative money, right? If like that becomes a tax write-off that saves them a hundred million in the long run. And if that's, if that's true, um, I, I would assume other studios would be interested in that, especially studios that took big losses on movies. I mean, look at Universal. They were making a ton of money with, I think they bankrolled Invisible Man, I could be wrong, and also The Hunt, which was, didn't get a fair shot in theaters. Um, now they're releasing it on Amazon. So it's like, Places like that that maybe are taking a hit. We know that uh, MGM took a huge hit in moving Bond. You know, I think that's MGM and Universal. So I'm wondering if places like that to offset that could donate money or develop a charity for tax write-offs. But again, we really don't know exactly what it's going to be like. Um, there's going to be a lot to figure out. I didn't even consider. It's a good point. I didn't even consider that these could be write-offs, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, again, like I'm not a huge business person. There's this thing called the Los Angeles Freelancers Relief Fund. And if people are listening, you should check it out. The website, I think if you just Google Los Angeles Freelancers Relief Fund, you can sign up there. And that's uh, they are working on a way to get people money. They want to know how you've been directly affected, uh, like what you need help with. A personal reference just to make sure, hey, you've uh, worked there. A website, like even an Instagram. So like if you're a PA and have Instagrams of being on set, maybe you don't have that because it's probably like not the best thing to have. But other than that, you know, things like that. And then you could put your resume there. Um, they're working on just Venmoing people money. So there are a lot of things out there that are happening, um, especially charities. But it, it is going to be hard, honestly, to figure out who needs what and, and where it goes. We need more action. And I don't know. People are coming up with ideas. Hopefully they're good ones. I think we're going to see a lot, unfortunately, try and fail um, just because this is so unprecedented. Yeah, I really uh, I hadn't heard about the L.A. Freelancers Guild, but I really like that you brought up that because it does bring up this sort of relevant question of, you know, there's sort of like big governmental actions like Canada has just announced that, you know, uh, no rent for six months, no mortgage for six months. Everybody's getting a check every a fifteen hundred dollar check. Every family's getting one every two weeks. So, like, you know, there's big governmental stuff that should just be like a big wide brush but like you know even within those big wide brushes the film industry has always been a very particular industry it's always been very weird it's always been a little different than a lot of others and like because we've always been so gig based we're, we're going to be hit very hard by these kind of closures it's also going to be really hard for us to restart because you know i keep reading these articles about like well maybe there's a thing happening this fall where like we start to restart business slowly but in all business meetings you, everybody has to sit six feet apart and some people have to telework and i'm like how do you do a film shoot where everybody is staying like you know where we're all of a sudden trying to have more personal space on sets so it is really interesting to think about like we're a we're a specifically impacted industry by this specific situation and it is but it's also an industry that's always traditionally been hard to document like if you've ever applied for the union membership right you have to all, have all this paperwork that's like I've worked on all these sets and like some sets you work on sometimes like you get a call sheet and it's a mess and they had your name wrong and you know 
like or like you work on a real small set and you get paid in cash or whatever and so like i was just gonna say it brings up an interesting side point what you're what you're talking which is that there's like we also have an industry with a lot of like imposter syndrome and you may not have worked on notable things or you may not have like this huge track record but that doesn't mean you haven't supported yourself doing various jobs in various corners, nooks and crannies of this industry. I certainly have at various times where like my IMDB does not accurately represent what I've done or all the projects I've worked on, et cetera. And like that, does that qualify you? What qualifies you? Like a lot of people aren't union, especially like you're saying now where there's so many um, projects that are non-union. So you could be like, you could have gripped on 10 things and not be union or local or it's, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it, there's so many questions and problems it creates, but I will say like, I think a possible silver lining is that it's a community that's probably suited towards a drought. Like we may be a drought tolerant community and that a lot of people know how to wait for gigs or have the experience of waiting. Yeah. We just, we have no idea, right. When things will open back up and to what extent. I mean, the thing that terrifies me the most about the film industry impact is not the people who work on big jobs. It's the countless little companies that make a film community thrive. Like so many of the TV shows you watch, the production company might have 10 employees. They might have gone to a sound house that had 10 employees, an edit house that had 10 employees. And those like 10 to 20 to 30 employee companies that's going to be the hardest hit. You know, if you're in the like $1 million to $10 million a year in billings, which is like a tremendous chunk of the film industry are all those little VFX shops, all those little color houses, all those little sound shops. Yeah, that doesn't even take into account uh, commercials and things too. You know, if you think about that, just I do a lot of work in commercials and things out here and just all of them have shut down and, you know, the big events you were doing commercials around, all the sporting events, the NBA playoffs, the Masters, NHL playoffs, all those commercials we're shooting now, and now is the time that usually I make the most money in the year on commercials, um, especially car commercials while there's still snow that's melting. They can shoot those for next winter. Like, all of that is done production right now, uh, and I don't think people understand how crazy that is or how much money is usually put. You're talking about tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars put on hold like now's the time where we would be shooting a super bowl commercial probably you know now or late summer maybe early fall when their concepts like this is what we're going to push in the new year so again like these are all things that are completely shut down look the people who are the heads of these companies lost a lot of money in the stock market so now they're forced probably to reevaluate how they spend their money now so that might mean if they had two assistants, now they have one assistant. It might mean if they had a cleaning lady coming cleaning the office who's not cleaning anymore, getting rid of that service. It's it's the, you know, for lack of a better term, trickling down of how bad it is. Um, you know, I do hope for the future. Like, I think a lot of in-house services could boost up. You know, a lot of what I do is write freelance for these things, but a, a lot of commercial companies maybe wind up hiring a writer inside to help out or, or polish things. You know, it, there's a lot of change that's going to happen because of this. So I'm trying to find the rosier side of it. But yeah, there's, there is some unmitigated panic. It is frustrating and scary for a lot of people. I'm hoping it does lead to major changes in the industry, but I also just, you know, I, I try to hope we can plan on something else or, or at least come out with the knowledge of, if this happens again, what would I do differently? And, and I don't have those lessons yet. I think I'm learning them every day. I mean, I think people pushed remote as quickly as they could. 
as efficiently as they could, <laughs> like in terms of setting up folks who were editing to be able to do it from home. Um, but of course, their systems aren't the same. You know, people's personal laptops or personal devices are different than whatever they were using in the office. So there's been some conversation of like, okay, do I rent something? Who rents something? How much money does that cost? Am I losing money if I rent something in order to edit something that I would normally be able to edit? Um, and those kind of conversations. I was surprised, I will say, how long I heard some folks going into offices in L.A., well after other folks had stopped going in, I had friends who were post-PAs and, and stuff. They were heading into the office well after everyone else had been recommended to stay home. And I feel like that is something that we have to talk about at some point um, in the industry about like how long folks were heading in the office, how long folks were asked to come in. And I don't know if that's because they weren't comfortable giving folks... I, I, I don't know. I think they're worried, right? I, don't, I think they're worried about... TV stopping, and so they just couldn't say no. Um, but there's some, there's some, there's some questions there. Well, it's also so complicated because, like, this is like you know, this is why when government needs to be part of it, because like I know people who wanted to shut down, but their contracts right, exactly. with their clients outline what allows them to shut things down. And so, like, they need they need a government to come in and say, we're officially in a state of emergency. And you're like, okay, state of emergency. When I'm in a state of emergency, that gives me cover with my contract. Yes, but the fact that the state of true. emergency was t- so long to come, if you're, you know, if you're a 20-person edit shop, like, look, I think everybody should have been sent home a week earlier than they were. And I think that, like, you know, it, at, the, at the school where yes. I taught, we were working very hard to stop productions two weeks before the official state of emergency was declared. It's really complicated if you have a contract with a big TV network and your breach of contract, if you breach, you're you're like, they could sue you. And so I totally, like, there's a certain point in which Garcetti has to come in or de Blasio has to come in or the federal government has to come in and say, this is a state of emergency. I bet most of the people who worked at the, who ran those post companies wanted to send people home. And I bet there were some who did it earlier than the state of emergency, but like the whole thing, you you need above action to start figuring it yeah, out. And it's true. really like, I like my heart breaks for everybody in that situation, except for like the lawyers who would have sued over the breach of contract. But like, uh, <laughs> and I generally love lawyers, but um, like the people running those companies were in a really tight spot. I, I, I wish... My Facebook was all covered with people in LA being like, I can't believe I'm driving to work today. To say nothing of the fact that there's a, there's a, there's a push, it would seem to get people back soon because of the way it's affecting the economy on the whole, which is just insanity. But the sooner we can do things like we meaning companies like Netflix or the government make it easier for people to not go back, the sooner this can actually be resolved but it's out of our hands. Like the the power, the power brokers have to be the ones to make that to de incentivize continuing to work. Just like you know, in Los Angeles, I don't know if this is true in other parts of the country, but it became necessary to close the parks and to close the beaches because people were thinking, well, I can go to those places, and then you have to de incentivize that <laughs> to make it harder because people will do what suits them until they're not allowed. Yeah, so if, if I mean if you're a freelancer or a film worker listening at this point, 
I would say keep your eye on these news stories because you might be entitled to some of these relief funds. Certainly check out the websites we talked about in the articles because you, if you're free, like you're used to going out and getting your own jobs, you're going to have to go out and get your own help. And I, I hate to have to say that, but that's really the way it's going to be. And if you can, and, and you're a producer or you're a director or someone who has a lot of money, please donate and donate unabashedly take the crazy tax write off next year and then donate your hundred million dollars because it is important and it is the only way to make sure art survives this and not just uh, commerce. Now is probably a good time to start talking about the NFS 60, which is what no film school is launching. For those of you listening and have not yet read the challenge rules, as far as I'm aware, the only rules are for the content to be 60 seconds or less and submitted by March 31st. You're allowed to use anything you film. You're allowed to use the stock footage you have access to, those things. And we're really excited to see what you guys put together. Please do it safely, uh, meaning in your self-quarantine indoor space. Do it as safely as possible. Do it with people you're quarantined with. Use found footage online. Animate, stop motion, anything. There's no rules because it's not really a contest. I just, we're only really going to feature ones we feel like we're done safely. Jason, you have written about how to make a strong, short, 60-second film. Do you want to give a few pointers to folks who are listening in? Absolutely. One thing I'm really excited about, especially with this contest, is just the idea of how fast can you tell a story and what's necessary to have a story that's emotionally moving. Certainly there's experimental things we're interested in as well, and and if you have that inclination, I encourage you to go for it. But for me, the one thing I'll say is get into the story as fast as possible. When you limit people to 60 seconds, there's not that much time for a bullshit around it. So I want to know who your characters are and what the stakes are in the first 10 seconds. One pointer or one suggestion I give to people is try to give us a short film that takes place in exactly one location. Um, A lot of times that helps people get into it right away, whether it's two roommates who one passive aggressively is not doing the dishes and one's doing them loud to get the other person to do it. Or a husband and wife who've been stuck together during quarantine trying to pick what's on Netflix. You know, like the sky's the limit for these stories. And and maybe you have a green screen and want to do two people arguing over which astronaut's the first one to step on the moon. Just get into the story as fast as possible. Give us the characters and the stakes right away. And then the rest of it really is about following three-act structure. Make the goal simple enough that you think you can resolve it in a minute. And try to make the emotions true and deep enough that they're relatable to people. So, you know, take that as it may. The, the crazy thing about the NFS 60 idea is that it came to NFS through multiple different people with NFS. So like a few of you, I think Jason V and Michelle all mentioned some version of this at various times. So it was like, hey, we should definitely do this if everyone's thinking about this. And it seems like the response has been really good. And we want to encourage more people to jump in and throw their stuff out there. And we've already seen some really cool stuff. And I'm really excited for to come out into the community for everyone to see, for us to highlight some of them. Um, I, you know, one of the ways I learned early on, like it was five minutes, but channel 101 long ago before even YouTube was a big thing was like this internet video, short video creation contest that I was involved in. And it had an alive in person element, but learning to tell short stories helped a lot of people from that community learn how to tell longer stories. And now a lot of them are like working on TV, like, 
Rick and Morty started there. And most of the guys who wrote it and work on it to this day came from that. So learning to tell a story, I think, quickly, effectively is one of the most important tools because it just strips you down to the basics. And like you just said, Jason, like if you can do that, then you know exactly what what you really need in a story to make it compelling. Then you can draw it out, I think. But that little, um, to me, that germ, that seed is really important. Absolutely. I mean, the, the challenge is there. Can you tell us an emotional story in 60 seconds? And so many people are um, tweeting and emailing us. Oh, how do I do it? There's like a really great movie that came out. I want to venture a guess and say 20 years ago called Lumiere and Company. And it took 100 filmmakers from across the world. Huge filmmakers. Steven Spielberg, Spike Lee. I'm trying to think of uh, some of the other um, internet, the Coen brothers, a lot of other international filmmakers whose names escape my mind. And what they did was give them an original Lumiere brothers camera and have them make a one minute short film. David Lynch has one in there too. And all of these short films were then cut together into one movie with a hundred different stories in it. And it, it's beautiful and fun. And it is possible. Check that movie out. Lumiere and company is the title. Um, but it is possible and you can do it. The biggest filmmakers can do it. See it as a challenge. It is a challenge. We want the best ones. And also, I do think this quarantine and self-isolation will end at some point, and you will need stuff to add to your resume. You can't have had like a dead six months where it's like, oh, I didn't do anything. Sure, there's going to be a lot of people like that, but if you really, truly want to get ahead and want to succeed, you won't be one of them. So my suggestion to you would be like, it's very easy to get someone to watch something that's one minute long. And if you have something that kicks ass that's one minute long, then there's a much bigger chance that people are then going to watch what's five minutes long, what's 15, what's an hour and a half, you know? So use this as a time to really work on not only yourself and uh, making yourself a better, better filmmaker, but also work on your resume and work on things that can get you hired in the future, especially if you want to work in Los Angeles, New York, or in any of the other huge film cities around the world. The big tech news this week is tech companies really coming together, a lot of post companies, but also a lot of production companies to try and provide some solutions. Now, most people know that Adobe is giving free access for education. Avid is doing some home access for education. Frame.io is offering two, terab two terabytes of extra storage for the next 90 days, and they're giving free enterprise accounts to educational institutions. Um, there's Signiant and Zoom and all sorts of people. So there's a whole lot of online platforms that are offering film workers who are um, having to move home the ability to get used to using these tools at home, which is very cool. But what I also wanted to highlight is that there's some free trainings up on the Airy website right now. It's actually um, through MZ, but there's the uh, an HDR masterclass and a James Lapton shooting H um, large shooting a large sensor masterclass. And then also, this is really interesting, Aperture has released their certification and product training, which is usually only for dealers. So, you know, the, if you've ever been at like a dealer or a rental house and it seems like they know everything about a product and you're like, I've read this whole company's website and you're telling me all this stuff about the product that I couldn't find anywhere, how did you know it? The, a good thing to know is that dealers and rental companies and stuff, there's usually deeper company-specific training that's not in any of the marketing materials, that's not anywhere else. But when you're like, when you're at this rental house and they're like, oh yeah, this one does 120 and 220 and it was built on a special custom board and the COB is built at this factory, 
either they learned it at NAB or they learned it as a special custom training because that kind of obscure stuff doesn't make it in the normal marketing materials and user manuals. And so Aperture is putting up via live stream their March 25th special training. And I think that's super cool. I mean, if I, I unfortunately am not going to be able to join, but if they archive it, I actually might go watch it later because that kind of like deep nerd stuff, it's not usually, it's, it's not the kind of stuff that's likely going to affect the way you use the tool in the field. Like it's not the kind of stuff where you're like going to light with your aperture units differently, but it'll be like fascinating stuff about how they work inside and their design process and, and repair stuff. And, um, it's super cool. Like, I think that's a neat way. I think a lot of like lighting and camera companies have been like, well, what can we do right now? Like people aren't online and Aperture's like, oh, well, we'll invite people that probably if you're, if you're busy enough shooting, you're never going to take the time to go to those kind of trainings. Like I've been meaning for the last year now, there's a whole bunch of airy trainings on MZ. Um, and I've been moving them from one to-do list to the next every month for about a year now because I keep being too busy to do it. And um, now is, I think, a really good time to look at like those airy certifications on MZ and Aperture. So even if you're a set person and you're like, well, you know, all these post tools aren't that exciting for me. I think one interesting thing is that set tools are finding ways to still keep people invested. Because going back to what Jason said before, like everybody should walk out of this with a couple more lines on their resume, however you can. But also everybody should walk out of this with a couple new skills. Um, I'm not one of those people who's like, you should all write King Lear because like that's a product of a specific time and making memes is just as legitimate as an art form. But like, I think that now is a good time in the next two months, all the people you were competing for jobs with in February, you're going to be competing for jobs with them again in September. And they're, they're all out learning some new skill in the next two months. They're all like, Ooh, let me learn a new plugin or let me get good at, you know, um, let me get good at fusion or let me get good at, so you should just pick a thing to improve in the next couple months. You should finally do those certifications for the area, Alexa. You should learn the inside of an led light. You should pick up some new piece of knowledge so that when we're back out and the world starts to normalize, I mean, the world, let's be real. The world has not felt normal since 2012, but if, if normal ever becomes a thing again, um, you'll you'll have a skill set that'll prepare you for whatever the next thing is. I will say if uh, people are processing all of this differently. And so I will just say if if right now you're not like I really want to go get all of my skills and certifications in a row and I just need time to do something else to process this, that's okay. Yeah. Like, respect. There's, like there's kind of a productivity push right now, which is fine. But some people read those like tweets about like, I wrote, you know, like someone said, you know, King Lear was created in this kind of quarantine time and I'm going to go create the next like masterpiece. Also acknowledge that like there's a, a lot of folks have increasing anxiety and depression right now and, and creating something and learning something may not be what you need to do at this very moment. Folks are processing this in different ways and um, going to learn a new skill may not be top yeah. of their radar. <laughs> eating eating Oreos and watching The Office is also a perfectly yes, valid, it's valid way to cope with this. We're all going to do whatever we can do in the next couple of months and whatever that is that takes care of yourself and that makes you feel. And maybe that's you're a type A and you're like, I'm going to learn seven new things. And maybe you're just like a normal person and you're like, I'm going to get really good at sweatpants and like, or you're a type A, which right. And right now sweatpants are your thing. 
Up next in Ask No Film School, Isaac Elliott asks, I'm interested in making a collage film of unknown 8, 16, 8 and 16 millimeter and VHS footage. Now, the thing with the footage is I don't have it yet. I'm buying lots of old home movies on eBay. Most of the footage will be from the 50s to the 70s. Is it legal to use this footage without releases of the participants, even knowing who they are? Um, this is a really, really good question. And then at the end, Isaac, you uh, you say, I'm in Australia, so it might be different, but I'm still interested in the American perspective uh, since there'll be a lot of American footage. So I'm going to give you my take on this, and I'm then going to open it up because everybody's going to have a take. So here's the thing. Intellectual property law is way more complicated than anyone wants it to be. There are very clear-cut cases, right? Like if I went out right now and I shot a movie of Infinite Jest, uh, David Foster Wallace's estate could sue me because it would be very easy to be like, no, 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 this is clearly a case where you are violating it. But there are a lot of cases where there's things like adaptive reuse or... um. So like if you tra transformative use, right? So, you know, you can go and you can take the Mona Lisa and you can paint a mustache on the Mona Lisa and you can sell that as your own art because you've transformed it. And we get in these really complicated places where we look at things like collage, things like transformation and things like sampling and music. So eventually sort of the legal standard for sampling and music became sort of built around a set of time, like how long your sample could be and it could still be safe. So the situation you're in is that this is actually like a complicated era, area and you're going to run into different lawyers who give you different answers. And I've actually worked with producers who say things like, oh, well, if you don't like the answer from one lawyer, you just keep going to another. The issues you're going to run into, first off, you're transforming all of this footage. You're going to be editing it. It sounds like you're probably going to have to do a color grade on it to improve it or transform it. Maybe you're even going to be taking it some of it through After Effects and manipulating it. So I think you have a pretty strong case to make in, in terms of transformative reuse. I think that your issues are going to come into with personal likeness. Like those are going to be the issues, the people who are in the videos. But again, it depends upon where you're trying to show it and what you're trying to do with it. If you just want to put it up on YouTube or show it in festivals, you're probably going to be fine. If you want to sell it as a series on PBS, channels like PBS have huge documentation processes and you're turning over this whole tranche of documents that you have permission to use everything you've used. So you really need to figure out like, where are you going with it? If you're going to show it in a gallery, if you're going to be showing it as an art piece, if you're going to be showing it um, publicly on YouTube, you're probably pretty safe. Um, the big thing I would say is focus on transformation, right? Because if you think about it, like, yes, you don't have releases from these people, but most street photographers don't have releases from those people either. They're just out there in the public taking street photography. So it's um, it, as long as you're putting yourself within sort of the realm of art, I think you're going to be okay and you're going to be able to get away with it. But this is an area where there is some debatability. The one place I would say to be careful is any footage you purchase that depicts crime or any behavior that by showing it could be revealed to be like libelous. Like if you find a guy and he's just like, you know, smiling at the TV and then you intercut that with a Nazi rally, the, the person eventually seeing that could be like, oh, you're implying I'm smiling at this Nazi rally and they could build a lawsuit about that. So you just want to be careful about like libelousness and the way in which you manipulate the footage. But if it's, if it's a pure sort of found footage art film, I think you're in pretty safe territory. 
I just want to say, Isaac, I love this idea. I think it's amazing. And I want to see it because I love, I love film. I love old film and found footage. I love the whole time travel. Uh, and when I say I love film, I mean, I love celluloid, not just the concept and the business or whatever. Um, I just think this is really cool. I wish more people were doing things like this. I'm just like, sometimes I go on YouTube or Vimeo and I just look for weird old super eight reels that people have digitized and posted. There's, there's some great ones out there of like Disneyland and stuff in the sixties. It's, I love that stuff. So I think this is great. Um, I've also like, I kind of want to piggyback on the producer answer of finding another lawyer by saying like the old thing of it's easier to ask um, for forgiveness than permission. And if you say you create this thing, say you alter it enough and say you put it out there and say like people love it and it's getting shared. And then say someone comes along with a lawyer and says to you, Hey, that's me in there. And I don't want you to use it. You may then decide like, okay, I'll have to pull that clip. Right. It might be, better if you just pull it might also be a situation where you can say, Hey, can we make an agreement where, you know, you'll have a lawyer, they'll have a lawyer and you'll find a way to reach common ground where it works for both of you. If you really want to keep it in. I mean, I think that you should go ahead and create it, I guess is the short version of what I'm saying and definitely take Charles's advice. Um, maybe seek out some legal advice too, if it's not super expensive to do so, but create this thing and then see where it takes you. And then if it creates problems, you can address them after the fact. In a lot of cases, there won't be people combing the internet to look for that, that footage. Um, and they won't be able to find it and create a problem. But of course, if they do, you know, then you cross that bridge and you come to it, but don't let that, I wouldn't want you to let that concern prevent you from creating something that could be really fun and cool and uh, informative. Yeah, if you get sued, it makes for such a good story. And I like don't <laughs> even say that as a joke. It just, yeah. Like, these people would have to find you, and then you'd have their childhood footage. And, like, you could make a documentary about that, which would be super interesting, even if it was just a short doc. Like, I don't know. There's so many reasons not to create manufact this feels like a good excuse not to do something and i'm i'm much more on board with like just do it i don't think ethically you're in a gray area unless like charles said the footage is intercut with something offensive or you use it or is like footage of them doing something offensive so i would just roll the dice again they would have to find you and if they did find you man what a story to tell there is a world in which if you were not interested in buying lots on eBay and you still wanted to figure out how to use old footage, um, I assume you could go on to the Prelinger archives in the public domain and find old Absolutely. stuff that way. That's a great idea, Michelle. Yeah, Michelle hit the nail on the head. There's definitely a way to do it with no problems. Public domain, yeah. You wouldn't have that kind of tangible film process but you would have the discovery process of finding, searching, and looking at cool stuff and downloading it and using it that way. And it, then it's free, number one. And number two, it's public domain, so you're good to go on almost everything. So throwing it out there, if 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 the if that's part of the pro, if you're looking for a low cost already available, but not as potentially not as fun if you're looking at the whole process of of. Um, you know, getting film in and digitizing and doing all that stuff. But could you could do that tomorrow. You know, you wouldn't have to buy a lot <laughs> from eBay and get it in. 
It opens up an interesting question that we don't have to answer today, but I'm, I'm curious to talk about in the future, and I might want to hear back from Isaac Elliott about this. What is the plan in terms of your equipment and your setup for getting someone's Super 8 or whatever film footage, old stock from eBay, into your computer? Like, I'm curious about that setup and how you're going to do that, and I'm fascinated by it. Because I think, and I think a lot of people probably are, because I just think it's a cool, I mean, I know a lot of labs and post places are set up to do that for people for a price, but are you going to do that at home? That's kind of, that's what I'm curious about. I have an ask for the ask. (laughs) All right, everybody. So that has been this week's No Film School podcast, COVID week two. I'm Charles Hayne. You can hit me up on the Instagram at Charles Hayne. You can hit me up on the Twitter at Charles Hayne. I have a web series called Salty Pirate. If you're shut in and you're looking for stuff to watch, it's coming out really soon. On March 26th, it's on a, this platform called Ficto, and it's in the beta. And Ficto leaves beta March. It goes into beta on March 26th. So if you want to check out Salty Pirate, uh, you can go to Ficto to, and uh, check it out. It's a it's an app on your phone. You can watch it there March 26th in beta, or you can wait and watch it on Amazon Prime and Hulu sometime in April. SaltyPirate.tv for more. Jason Hellerman signing off. If you want to hire me to write anything, you can find me at uh, JasonHellerman.com. It's pretty easy. Just send me a message through that. Uh, check out my articles on No Film School. Tweet me at Jason Hellerman. Pretty much just type my name in somewhere, and that's a good way to find me. And I'd be happy to chat with you and, you know, happy writing. And we'll get through this together if everybody just washes their hands. This is Michelle De La Tour. Uh, I'm thinking of all of you. I look forward to viewing your NFS60 submissions. Have a fun time doing that. Have a safe time doing that. And we look forward to chatting with you guys again soon. And this is George Edelman, uh, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we've gotten a lot of message recently about people listening and, and stuff they've enjoyed from us and uh, appreciated. And it means a lot to us and No Film School, of course, to hear from you. Keep checking nofilmschool.com for updates. I wanted to quickly let everybody know we're going to have some roundtables Um, We have a colorist roundtable that Charles conducted. We will have a cinematographer's roundtable that Charles conducted, as well as another shorts roundtable from Sundance 2020. Um, We continue to have news about the projects that were supposed to be shown at South by Southwest, and we're really excited to get those up and in front of everybody. So that's another thing you can check out the site for. Thanks so much.